Well, friends, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 1 to 8 today. And, and let me, before we do that, just say happy belated Thanksgiving. Uh, it's uh, hopefully, hopefully it was good, right? Hopefully there's a little bit more normalcy than uh, the past. For us, we were excited. We got to go down to Virginia. It's my first time back in Virginia for Thanksgiving in, I don't know, it was like 10 or 15 years. So I, I was reminded of how much I love, you know, it's a southern buffet style, like you get those disposable chinette plates that are the size of like cafeteria trays, right? And you take it up, not the ones with the little partitions. Those are wrong. Those are just wrong uh, because the gravy's got to hit everything. It's got to hit everything. So uh, anyway, collard greens. Do y'all know what collard greens are up here? Do you? Yeah. Okay. Cooked with ham and fat back or whatever else they call it. There were quite a few concerned family members and friends for me though. Uh, they're like, we heard you live in Philadelphia they're mean up there, right? It's just kind of that none of them sound like that. But, um, but they basically said they throw batteries at Santa. Three people said that to me. Y'all have a reputation. Don't throw batteries at Santa. It's just wrong. You can't do that. But uh, anyway, some of y'all are looking at each other like we did. Just ask your parents, uh, you know. So anyway, but I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, it was fun for us. It was a sprint down south and back, but it is always good to be back and to be with you all. Well, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8. We're going to read it in its entirety. We're just going to dive right into it here in just a second. So if you have a real Bible or a Bible on an app on your phone, uh, I would love for you to just open it because I'm going to be referencing, but it won't necessarily be up on the screen. Uh, If you don't have one on your phone, it's pretty easy. ESV Bible, uh, search in the App Store. You can download it or Uversion. That's another great app. Uh, But again, would love for you to be uh, watching along with me as... I preach. And and just to set the stage of where we were last week, last week we were basically, uh, the last verses that we looked at was was Paul telling Timothy, hey, uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching and correcting uh, and exhortation, or uh, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so that's what we're rolling out of. And and this is one of those sections of this book that, that it would be a shame if we didn't lean hard into it to to listen closely to what Paul's saying, because these are really Paul's last words. You know, Paul, if you remember, as we began, uh, you know, Paul saw Timothy uh, come to faith. He discipled him, mentored him. He walked with him through life. And then he sent him out to plant these churches. And, and, And the reality is, and what we've talked about, is Paul is essentially on death row. In fact, within weeks, but probably days of writing this, he's going to literally lose his head. Nero is going to have him executed because of his faith. And so in this letter that he's writing to his child, he's essentially giving his final charge to him. You know, if you were to kind of squeeze this book, this is the the drop that would come out. It summarizes a lot of what he said. And and really, it's just a time where, you know, when you're listening to to the words of someone who is dying, you lean in and listen hard. And so may God give us the ability to to listen well. Uh, to this passage here today. And so uh, let me read the passage to you, uh, and then we'll get going. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, 1 to 8. I'm just going to read the whole thing. So just feel free to sit and listen, and then we'll work our way through it in just a moment. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let me pray for us as we get going. Lord, I pray that you would pull our minds from away from whatever it is that could be distracting us. Lord, pull our hearts away from whatever it is that uh, we may be casting all of our affection on this moment uh, apart from you. And Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you'll just help us lean into these final words of this apostle, a Lord, who is instructing his spiritual child of what it looks like and what the Lord has called him to as he follows after you, Jesus. Lord, for the heart that is far from you, I pray that you would draw it to yourself this morning. Father, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would soften our hearts to these words and that you uh, would uh, go with my words as I preach. And so, Lord, thanks for this time. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So here's, you know, the outline is basically going to be a sentence today. I'm going to break down this phrase as we go. And I'm basically pretty simply going to walk us through the passage today. So here's, here's the sentence that we're going to work through. Is that the ultimate God and judge charges us to proclaim the word and fulfill our call until our hopeful finish. Let me read it again. The ultimate God and judge charges us to proclaim the word and fulfill our call until our hopeful finish. All right, so we're going to break that apart into the four chunks, right? So here's the first one. The ultimate God and judge. That's, that's the beginning, and, and that's really just verse 1. What Paul is articulating to Timothy as he's getting ready to die, he says, Hey, Timothy, <laughs> I'm giving you these charges before an ultimate audience and in the midst of an ultimate reality. So there's an ultimate audience and an ultimate reality. The ultimate audience is who he says in verse 9, he's charging them before, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. So essentially, he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you are constantly living your life before an ultimate audience. Whether you're paying attention to him being there or not, he's always there. He's watching your life. He's paying attention to your motivations and to your heart. This is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, and Jesus Christ himself, who is the judge, and he will judge the living and the dead. Friends, let's just stop and just sit there for a second. Do do we believe that? Now, in some ways, that can be sobering and disquieting. In other ways, it can also be an encouragement, especially for those of us who uh, tend to be people pleasers. Uh, Paul articulates this in 1 Corinthians. He's writing a letter to the Corinthians who they kind of hate his guts right now, that church. They didn't like Paul. And he said, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. But he goes on and says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, it's kind of a good news, bad news scenario, right? And so he's sitting there going, it's not that big a deal that a human court judges me. And honestly, the person who, we, who often condemns us the most is ourselves. He said, I don't even stand in judgment over me. 
But what he does say is he says, let me go back. I'm not aware of anything against myself. So he's not, oh, don't judge me. I'm going to go live the way I want. No, he's still paying attention to his own heart. But he's basically saying, it's the Lord who ultimately judges me. Now, in the end of this passage today, we'll see where there's actually comfort in that for Paul. And there's an answer for those of us who are actually disquieted by it. But there's an ultimate audience. The second thing we see him pointing him to is an ultimate reality that's beyond Paul's present circumstances. He says, Jesus Christ, who is the judge to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So he's saying, Timothy, there's an ultimate reality that goes beyond this life that I'm getting ready uh, to lose sight of, right? He's saying there is a kingdom that is coming. It's the one that Jesus Christ will bring. It's, it's this picture of ultimate redemption where his perfect reign and perfect restoration will be brought to life. And, and in part, I think he could be reminding Timothy not to fall in love with something that will not last forever. This is what John says. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Why? Because the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There's an ultimate audience and there's an ultimate reality. You know, one of the worst days for me when I was younger, whether it be PE or we're playing pickup ball after school, is where, you know, you're already playing and and you're playing without a referee, you're kind of calling your own fouls, and you know how that goes sometimes, you get a little chippy and whatnot, but, but the worst moment of the whole time is when somebody says, all right, you know what, you know, our team's destroying your team, we're not going to keep score anymore. Man, what happens when you quit keeping score in one of those pickup games? That thing just devolves, right? Eventually, you got the guy who's just the ball hog, and he goes, he starts shooting it from half court. There's a fight that always used to break out, and, 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 and honestly, friends, that's just kind of this, this reality of of, of what happens to us when, you know, there's no refs, there's no score, there's no aim. We're just kind of playing ball, right? Just to play ball. And I would just say this is, is that's kind of what it feels like if we play without realizing that there is an ultimate audience and an ultimate reality. Do we live our lives as though that reality doesn't exist? There's no refs, there's no scores, there's no point to this. Or, or are we anchored in the fact that that God is there and he is watching and he is that judge and there is a kingdom that comes and it will not pass away. Here's the second part of the phrase. So the first one is the ultimate God and judge. It goes on, charges us to proclaim the word. And this is going to be verses 2 to 4. And so when we talk about proclaiming the word, we need to talk about the, the what, the how, and the why, right? The what, the how, and the why of proclaiming the word. Now, when we talk about preach the word here, I know some of you are like, but Anthony, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a church planner. That's, that's not me. That's Timothy. So this doesn't really apply to me. But what I would argue is it actually applies to every single one of us. And I say that because Jesus says before he left his disciples, that he tells them to go and make disciples and teach them to obey all that he has commanded. And the only way that happens is if we are preaching, teaching, communicating, bringing one another back to the Word time and time again. So let's talk about the what. What is he talking about when he says preach the Word? Well, essentially what he's saying is, is we need to continually preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as it is anchored in Scripture. Not our version of Jesus Christ. Not our version of Jesus' teaching. But his version. What he said. So for, believe, or for people who are talking to those who are unbelievers, they're like, I don't know how to share my faith. Just open the book of Mark. Open the book of John and walk through it together. Say, this is who Jesus says he is. This is what it looks like to, to believe in him by faith. 
for believers talking to other believers. It's us opening God's word together. And it's us, first of all, reminding each other of the gospel as it's written in scripture. But then it's saying, and this is what it looks like. This is what the outworking of that gospel looks like in our lives. It's written all throughout the pages of scripture. So that's the what. But then there's a how in verse 2. There's a few things he's saying. Hey, as you preach, there's, there's a how to this that, that you're going to need to learn, lean into, Timothy. The first thing he says is be ready in and out of season. So that term be ready means be urgent or stand by. Never lose your sense of urgency. I don't know if you watch like a movie where you know, they're in the jungle, there's all these scary animals, and, and then there's like a fire burning, and the person's like watching, and then they just start drifting off to sleep. You just know they're going to get eaten, right? You just know that's going to go south pretty quick. You're like, stay awake, right? Keep watch. And in a sense, that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Be urgent in your awareness that everyone around you, including yourself, constantly needs to be reminded of the gospel. In and out of season means when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. There's never a time where where we should not be looking to say, hey, how can I apply God's word? How can I uh, think about how God's word fits this moment? So there's a, then there's three words, re, repro- reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And this is really the skill to which we talk about God's word. You know, we don't just always walk up to somebody and say, you know, thus saith the Lord, right? Here's what it says, get in line, you know, let's just keep moving. These three words actually mean something. Reprove is more of an intellectual word. Rebuke is that of a a moral word, right? Correcting morality. And then the third is exhort. That's more of an emotional word. And so he's saying there's going to be times where you're engaging with God's word where you're going to have to use it differently, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all. And and, and if you've ever um, bought your child one of those massive Lego sets, uh, you will understand the difference between these three things. So uh, many years ago, I bought my son a Millennium Falcon, right? A Star Wars, you know, starship. You remember that thing? It's like 8 million pieces, something like that, give or take. Uh, and, and so there's the intellectual piece of this where you open the instructions and you're like, you know, open bag one, put these things together like this, open bag two, right? You know what I'm talking about if you've ever done Legos? Uh, but then there's kind of the, the corrective, like, you know, that rebellious thing in us starts to, you know, be like, I like this red piece here. It's not on the instructions, And you're like, don't do that. Don't put that there. Don't put that there. If you put it there on step three, it's going to ruin step 865, right? Like, stop that. Stop, right? But then there's the exhortation. There's the emotional moment where either you or your child is going to grab that blasted Lego set and smash it in the ground because it's the most infuriating thing in the world. And we need to come alongside and say, calm down. It's okay. Let's persevere. And so this is how Paul is telling Timothy we engage with God's Word. Sometimes it's the mind. Sometimes it's the will and the heart. And sometimes it's just the emotion of of, of just encouraging people to keep going by using God's Word. He says, do it with complete patience. Right? Whether or not this person, uh, he's saying, Timothy, be willing to wait for it. Right? Wait for it. I keep saying it, I'm going to break into song from Hamilton and Aaron Burr, right? It's in town. Sorry, you don't even know. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, but welcome to my mind. Now, you may say, Anthony, he says, be urgent with it, but then be patient. Why would he say those two things? That's kind of weird. Well, he's saying, hey, uh, the gospel matters. It is a matter of life and death. But you and I, no matter how wonderful our argument, how well-reasoned our use of Scripture is, we cannot change a human heart. 
We cannot cause someone's heart that is desirous and pursuing something other than Jesus to change direction. Whether or not they're believers or non-believers, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. He's telling us to be urgent in our communication of it, but be patient in His work because God's timing is perfect and we don't fully understand it. Finally, he says our use of God's Word is uh, a picture of, of teaching, right? There's a doctrinal ministry that every single one of us is called to. We are called to use our heads. And in part, the reason for that is the why question, which is verses 3 and 4. So the what, the how, and here's the why. Verse 3 and 4 tell us that there's something that every single one of us are prone to rejecting and then pursuing. Verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Verse 4, people will turn away from listening to the truth. And then what's the direction or the drift that our hearts are prone towards? Verse 3, it says, we'll rather move towards having itching ears and accumulate for ourselves teachers that suit our own passions. Or verse 4, that we're prone to just wander off into silly myths. So let's talk about a couple of those words because they're they're kind of different. We don't use them often. The first is itching ears. You know, what on earth does itching ears mean? Oh, it's, it's, it's the normal desire of our heart for one interpretation could be a desire for spicy bits of new information. You know, even in our faith, there tends to be this thing of being like, but there's got to be something extra. It's little spicy bits of new information, a, a yearning for novelty that results in a pursuit of teachers who will tell us exactly what we want to hear. Friends, we will find those teachers. It says our hearts are drawn not towards common sense, not towards logic, but towards our own passions. Todd said it well. That's the language of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve fell into sin. They were following their own desires and their own passions. And by nature, those will often, and if not almost always, if left unchecked, lead us away from God. I think for myself, if I'm paying attention and evaluating my own heart, my own desires, looking at the algorithms of social media can usually tell me the things that I'm yearning for. We can Google and find any teacher that tells us anything today. You know, that search for novelty in the Christian faith, the Christian faith is beautiful, but, you know, we're never going to find anything new. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, he he makes this comment, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. In a way, it's more of a plot, right? Here's a second term, silly myths. Silly myths, it goes back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. He talks about it there too, where he's basically saying people will readily accept fanciful myths rather than truth. And there's this range where it could be just these you know, fancy stories that we make up about our faith or about whatever it may be. And then there's just simple distortion and deception. But our hearts yearn for that. And oftentimes what these myths do is we use them to excuse immoral behavior. So it can be just enough truth, but enough for us to just hate our neighbors, right? Over the weekend, watched a movie called Red Notice. So you know I'm a Dwayne The Rock Johnson fan. I love it. I know you all laugh at me every single time. 
I say it, but th- this movie Red Notice, it's entertaining, right? Like most of his movies, the action isn't great, the plot isn't too deep, you pretty much know how it's going to work out by the end. But it was entertaining. I liked it, I giggled, uh, it was good. But there's one scene uh, there at the very beginning of the movie where uh, he is uh, protecting some pieces of art. So there were these three, uh, they called them uh, Cleopatra's uh, three eggs, right? Uh, that there, you know, two of them were known. One was in an art gallery. The other one was missing. And, and the rock is walking into this art gallery and is kind of rock walk. And, and he's like, if the egg's not already gone, or if the, if the egg's not, you know, um, if it's not stolen, it's probably already gone. Anyway, I can't talk right now. He's basically saying it's probably gone. And he's like, the, the, the museum curator is saying, nope, I just left it. It was sitting there. There was a crowd of people. And he's like, yeah, it's probably already gone. And they walk up to it and the crowd parts and, and there's the egg and the the, the museum guy saying, yep, there it is. And, and the rock's like, you're just seeing what you want to see. And he's like, huh? And he walks over and he steals his poor kid's Coke. Uh, and he walks over to this precious egg and he pours the Coke on top of it. And, and basically the acid in the Coke dissolves the egg and, and reveals it to be the fake that it is. So in many ways, I feel like when we're talking about how we use the word and how that combats the, the myths and the desires of our heart, uh, it's really exposing in us that which we really want to see, but is something that's false. God's word is that soda can that we pour on top of all the desires of our heart that reveal it to be that which will ultimately fail us and let us down. So let me just say this, and this is something that Scripture holds before us, and we cannot escape this. Truth is never internal or subjective. Truth is never internal and subjective. What that means is is we cannot find truth in here. Truth isn't something that just changes on a whim. But friends, that's the Disney lie. That's what we've been taught our whole lives. Truth is in here. It matters based upon our emotional fluctuations. What a terrible truth. Truth dies every 80 years or so, right? Eight billion times. What God's Word holds before us is that truth is always external and objective. It's external in that it comes from the source of truth in God Himself. It's objective because He is the object in which gives forth that truth. It, is not, uh, it doesn't you know, variate based upon our emotional fluctuation. Another person said it this way, In our world today, sociology tends to interpret our theology now rather than our theology interpreting our sociology or how we engage with one another as humans or how we see our meaning of life. Now, let me also say this, because I know in a moment where I talk about irreverent silly myths and following our passions, you know, after Thanksgiving and after all those turkey conversations that we have with family members, I know some of us, maybe not all of us, but some of us might be like, Oh, yeah, uncle so-and-so, they totally believe in those irreverent, silly myths, right? We, we tend to just look out to other people. And I would just say, stop and turn the camera back on our hearts and ask ourselves the questions, where am I following my own passions rather than truth? And where might I be following silly myths rather than what God gives us in the perfection of His Scripture? All right, let's talk about the third one. So, the ultimate God and judge charges us to proclaim the word, and then here's the third part, and fulfill our call. 
So there's just this reality where there's going to be a lag between what God has given to Timothy, or what Paul writes to Timothy, and, and when Timothy's ministry is done. And, and there's going to be a lag between when we read this and what God has called us to is done. How do we approach it at a heart level as we uh, keep moving forward? And, and a couple of words here in five are just worth noting. One is with sobriety. With sobriety. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Sobriety means be steady, be controlled, to be free from every form of mental or spiritual drunkenness or intoxication. Here it might even be saying when people get intoxicated with novel spiritual ideas, he's telling the person who's talking about Scripture to remain calm and steady and just continue to follow Jesus. Here's a second term. He tells them, He tells them to endure suffering. And friends, there's just this reality that as we follow after Jesus, there is a long suffering and a refusal to compromise even when it's unpopular. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. We talked about that last week. And then finally, and there's some debate as to what exactly this means, but he says, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. He could be talking about an official office or role that, that Timothy has been called to as a church planter. Or, and I think this is viable as well, he's saying, just continue to share your faith. Because especially especially as people drift away from the truth, John Stott would say this, the harder the times and the deafer the people, the clearer and more persuasive our proclamation of the gospel needs to be. All right, so here's the last part of the phrase. So the ultimate God and judge charges us to proclaim the word and fulfill our call until our hopeful finish. Until our hopeful finish. And this is verses 6 to 8. And, and the gears turn, right? The pronouns go from you, 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 Timothy, to now I or me. And so basically what, what we have here is a picture of Paul fighting to the end when the prize is all that's left. So Paul's fighting to the end when the prize is all that's left. The, the fighting to the end piece in verse 6. There's really two illustrations that Paul's giving us here about where he is in his life and in his ministry. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And so there's two pictures here. The the drink offering piece, that's something that we don't quite understand in our time, but it's a picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system, where the animal is sacrificed and then uh, the blood is poured out, right? And so Paul is essentially saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die soon, and I know it. The time of my departure has come is a picture that that term departure could mean loosing, releasing, releasing shackles, or really it could be a nautical term that shows this picture of untying a boat from its moorings. And so he's saying it's time for me to to set sail, to be with my Savior for eternity. And then he gives Tim kind of this picture of, hey, Tim, this is the goal that I want you to aim for. He uses metaphors that we've heard him use before. In verse 7, he says, I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You know, that fight the good fight and finish the race. If you go back to chapter 2, he's telling Timothy, hey, train hard, right? Run the race with endurance. And Paul's basically saying, Tim, my race is done. My time in the gym, it's over. I'm here. And then that last picture, or that last word where he says, I have kept the faith. Essentially what he's pointing back to is, you remember a number of weeks ago, we talked about how Paul was telling Timothy, 
Guard the good deposit of the gospel. Guard the good deposit of the gospel. Don't lose sight of the gospel. Continue to share the gospel and teach the gospel. Paul is essentially saying, I have safely preserved as a guardian and a steward the gospel treasure committed to my trust. And he's saying, Tim, my race is done. He's saying, keep running. Keep running. You know, the picture that I have in mind, and I wonder, I wonder if, if Tolkien, when he wrote uh, The Fellowship of the Rings, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, if, if this is the picture, I don't know if you see the end, it's been out long enough, spoiler alert, I'm going to say some stuff that you might have needed to read a long time ago, but uh, anyway, um, Bilbo, Frodo, and Gandalf at the end, they make their way to a place called the Grey Havens, and it's this goodbye, and, and they're getting ready to, to set sail to Valinor, the undying lands. You know, Frodo had faithfully carried the ring, he had accomplished his task, and, and, and really the boat is getting ready to be loosened, right, and drift off. And, and I just wonder if this passage is what was on Tolkien's mind when he was writing it, thinking of Paul untying the boat, saying, my race is done, I carried the ring, here we go. Here's the last part. He's fighting till the end when the prize is all that's left. Verse 8, he says, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord's. You know, the idea of crowns back then, I know we think of these crazy gold and ornate crowns, but, but most people would say, yeah, it's probably not what Paul had in mind. He probably had the, uh, the laurel wreath, right, that you're familiar with, maybe after someone wins an event in the Olympics. Uh, where the wreath itself isn't worth a whole lot. It's more what it signifies. And, and what Paul is saying here is, I'm going to have a crown that signifies, it says, righteousness. Or the other way you can interpret it is this term, justification. And so he's like, there is this crown of justification that is mine. And, and here's where I want us to slow down, just for a second. Remember what has happened to Paul. Nero has not justified him or made him just or declared him not guilty. He's actually condemned him. He's actually said, you're going to die. I wonder if Paul is reminding himself of the justification that is his in Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, is his peers, Paul's peers might go, yeah, you, you didn't finish church plan. You're getting killed like a criminal, much like Jesus. You must be an utter failure. But I wonder if this is, if Paul's own word is what was running through his mind as he penned this, where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, justification is a funny term, and I think it's becoming increasingly foreign for us as a culture, because we used to say, hey, here's the list of things that God tells you not to do, and if you do them, uh, you'll feel guilty, right? That's called sin. And, and I think, you know, even back when I was in my teens and 20s, that would have made some sense. But, but as I pay attention today, that, that doesn't really fly. Shame is something we feel more often than guilt. But I will tell you the one area where I feel like culturally we still feel guilt. And, and it's this picture of our identity achieved versus our identities received. We live in a day and age where we are just constantly dividing and finding our purpose and all of our meaning in our identities. Whatever that may be, American, conservative, progressive, white, black, Asian, our sexuality, whether or not we're a great mom or, or a successful business person, whatever that may be, we are tirelessly pursuing being justified by our tribes that we identify with. But friends, that's an exhausting task. 
eventually whatever tribe we cling to and we're constantly seeking its approval, they'll turn on us because they're people, because that's what we do. And so I think part of what Paul is articulating and maybe an area for us to sit as we think through justification is, friends, we have been offered in Jesus Christ an identity that is only received. His perfection. Jesus' righteousness. None of our own. Nothing that we can stand on our pedestal and condemn somebody else for not having reached our level of. Jesus has reached it for us. We have no reason to boast or to have pride. Here's the last thing that I think is significant. He says, The righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. There's a past tense and then a future sense of what he says here. I have loved his appearing. Jesus hasn't appeared yet. But Paul loves it already. And he says, Every single person who is Jesus's, who love him, loved his appearing, right? There's this past tense and future tense. And I think what Paul is essentially doing is he is meditating on that verse that he wrote in Romans 8.1. He has made me right in God's eyes. I did not deserve it. He has made me his son. Man, I love him. And he just can't wait to see his Savior face to face. Friends, that can be ours too. If we sit and meditate on what Christ has done for us, through no merit of our own, we don't deserve it. We fall in love with Him. We can't wait for His appearing. Even in the moment of our death, much like Paul, there can still be joy because we can't lose Him. We have Him for all of eternity. And I think the flip side of that is there's a moment of terror for people in this that is not spoken of. But there are people who are not going to love Jesus' appearing. It's because verse 1 says, He is the judge of all the living and the dead. And for those of us who willingly rejected Jesus for our whole entire lives, that will be a terrible moment. But friends, can I just be honest with you? His free offer of grace is sitting there looking at you in the face right now. He's saying, this is who I am. I lived a life you couldn't live. I died the death to pay the penalty you could not pay. I rose from the dead and I defeated an enemy in sin and death that you could not defeat. And I reign with the Father for all of eternity. And if you just simply believe in me, that's all yours. That's all yours. And so friends, don't let that be a day of dread. Love His appearing today. Because that will be the most glorious day of your entire existence. The ultimate God and judge charges us to proclaim the word and fulfill our call until our very hopeful finish. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, for the hearts that don't love your appearing, (laughs) and Lord, that could be those who call on you in faith, and, and Lord, those who don't. I pray that the same picture that, that Paul is given hope with on the eve of his death would be that which infects our hearts and causes us to fall in love with you. Lord, if we have given into the myth that we can find truth in ourselves and it's subjective and ever-changing, would you convict us of that quickly and show us the foolishness of it? And Lord, would you show us the goodness of your word that points us ultimately to who you are, Jesus? 
And Father, would you take us and make us as a church people who do preach, teach, communicate the word to a world who doesn't know you and to one another. And so, Lord, what strikes me in all of this is this is really an Advent passage. Lord, Advent means coming, and it's us anticipating your second coming. And in many ways, that's exactly what Paul is doing as he gives these final charges to Timothy. So, Lord, over this next month, as we anticipate your coming, that's what we do at Advent, I pray and ask you that you would just cause us to fall deeper in love with you. We love you, Lord. Thanks for this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen.